You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV. And crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler filled conversation about the first three episodes of Disney Plus's new Star Wars TV series, Andor. This is Slash Home Editorial Director Peter Soretta. Joining me on today's podcast is editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And our special guest. Are you even a special guest anymore? I don't think you're a special guest. We're just going to call you the, the, the regular co-host on our Star Wars Breakdowns podcast. This is Star Wars. Uh, you, you know him from Star Wars Insider. You know him from StarWars.com, Full of Sith podcast. He's uh, what I like to call the Star Wars expert, Brian Young. Well, I like to think I'm special. <laughs> okay. Um, well, and you forgot the, the most important thing is that I, I cover Star Wars for Slash Film, too. Yes, and I love that. I love uh, all, reading all your articles because Brian, Brian, like, not only is he a Star Wars expert, but if you've listened, if you haven't listened to any of these podcasts, I feel like he has a uh, a sense a sense of storytelling and character that uh, you dig deeper into the stories and it, it make me appreciate even the ones that I don't like more. I I uh, I appreciate you saying so. I like to think that I do. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's get into it because we've got three episodes to talk about. They debuted three episodes at once, and I I think it's fair to say they did that for a reason because if they only aired one or two, I feel like uh, the 
I feel like the reaction would be much different. I feel like this this is a a three. This is almost like a mini movie. This these three episodes. I feel like you need to get to that third episode before you even have an opinion about the show, because things just like heat up so big in in that third episode. Uh, but um, Brian, what are your brief thoughts about the first three episodes of Andor? Um, I think I think you're right about that. It did feel very much like a mini movie, and it. it it's really great drama, but I'm still not convinced it's great Star Wars. If that makes sense. Mm, okay. Like it's it's more it's like Tony Gilroy doing Star Wars or doing Tony Gilroy in a Star Wars universe. Um, but it's not like all the other filmmakers who have stepped in to do Star Wars, like make it very much Star Wars first and then their stuff second. And Tony Gilroy is sort of shining a spotlight on the stuff he does best. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I think that there are going to be some fans or even kids like this is not a kid's show, but like it's not the kind of show I'm going to sit down and watch with the kids like Kenobi was. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. I, I it, see that was one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, Brian, because I, I whenever I have these podcasts with you, I have these discussions even off the podcast. You always remind me that George said that Star Wars is for, for children and this does not feel like it's for children at all on any level. Yeah. I mean, like maybe when K2SO enters the show, it maybe if that happens next season, but yeah, no, this, this is very much high drama of the, the game of Thrones breaking bad, you know, that sort of well-written scripted drama on TV. And it's some of the best I've ever seen, but it's, it's just, it's hitting a different, it's hitting a different range of Star Wars fan or even like casual fan than all of the rest of Star Wars combined. And I don't know if that's going to work out in Disney's favor or to their detriment. <laughs> and I'm not sure I, I care because I'm enjoying it. And and that's what matters to me. I will tell you, Brian and, and Brad, I, uh, I am conflicted about the show. I am very much enjoying the show. But at the same time, I'm conflicted as a Star Wars fan because I'm not sh- I don't know. Should I be bothered that it doesn't quite feel like a Star Wars thing? Like it feels, well, first of all, it feels very different than any other Star Wars uh, visual thing that we've seen before. I'm, I'm sure there might be novels that are of this like uh, ilk, but um, you know, of the movies and TV shows, there's nothing that feels like this. This feels like an HBO original series or uh, it doesn't feel like a Disney Plus production. It, it feels like it's aiming for a specific uh, highbrow audience, and uh, instead of where Disney Plus usually is aiming for, you know, all four quadrants. And even though I feel like I'm in that highbrow audience that enjoys these kind of things, it, it, it feels weird because, like, you know some of the things I like about star Wars are kind of missing from this. There's no cute creatures. I mean, I guess there's the crowing hounds, but, uh, and, and a couple alien creatures in the background of some scenes and stuff like that. But like, uh, it's interesting because like, all, you know, we have these podcasts and uh, <laughs> like you compare to this, like the Mandalorian where it's like filled with Easter eggs and cameos. And the show has none of that. Uh, not that that's a uh, a negative in any way, because I I don't need a Easter eggs or cameos. Um, uh, it's very serious. It's a slow burn. Uh, I 
I am re- very much enjoying it, though. Like, it, it really did escalate in that third episode. And the other thing I wanted to say is there's no stagecraft, which was something I think we were praising uh, previously with The Mandalorian and, and Book of Boba Fett. Um, but now seeing a, what a Star Wars TV show could be with real practical sets, I kind of think it might be a mistake to, like, rely so heavily on stagecraft. Now, I'm not saying that stagecraft is bad. But uh, I don't know. I, I just love the expansiveness and like how this feels just so big. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on Andor? Yeah, um, I'm pretty much right there with you. We talked a little bit about this when we did the early buzz earlier this week that uh, the two episodes that it starts off with are a bit of a slog, really kicks in the year in episode three. Uh, we've seen four episodes uh, and the fourth episode is equally as great. And yeah, I, I felt like it was hard to really like get on board with the show at first. It's um, it's a slow burn. Uh, it feels very much, I know uh, Brian has made um, comparisons to like Michael Clayton and stuff like that, which um, I, I, I was kind of reminded of uh, Anton Corbin's The American uh, with the, the beginning of the show, just a very quiet, uh, you know, kind of conspiracy thriller almost. And then it kind of kicks into a more uh, thrilling World War II kind of thriller once episode three comes around. Um, and there's a lot of characters to be invested in. There's a lot of mysterious plots afoot. It's not clear who you can trust, which I really like. And I, I honestly don't mind that it feels like it's for adults. Cause I don't, I'm not one of these, uh, you know, star Wars fans. Who's like, uh, a long time fan. Who's a bit of a, a prude when it comes to star Wars, bringing in new audiences, appealing to younger, uh, viewers and that kind of thing. Star Wars, you know, should be for a, a lot more than just the adults who grew up watching the original trilogy, uh, and whatnot. But I, if anything, I think what I appreciate about the series is not that it's just for, Uh, adults even though that is a nice touch is that i hope this opens the gates for us to see a wide variety of different stories in star wars than just the kind of stories that we've seen from star wars movies and tv shows previously because all the other star wars tv shows have been trying to capture the same tone and style of the star wars movies injecting uh little tidbits of fun and like you said easter eggs and creatures and all this stuff and that that kind of stuff is cool but the star wars universe is so expansive that there's so much room to tell different stories in different styles with different uh narrative and and and, um and visual flourishes like it, it doesn't all have to look like the Star Wars uh, saga, the Skywalker saga, even. It's fine if there are cool stories with ties to those characters and uh, certain plot points and things like that. But what I really want to see is Star Wars expand into different genres and really give us stories that are just worth telling, You know, regardless of whether or not they fit firmly in the style of what everyone thinks Star Wars is. I want to see Star, the definition of what Star Wars is change a little bit. And I think that that makes some people uncomfortable, especially after Star Wars The Last Jedi and how certain people reacted to Ryan Johnson's expansion of, you know, Star Wars uh, mythos and, and yeah. things that we all thought we knew. So I, I, I don't think it's the same thing as Last Jedi. Like, no, 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 I, no, not, I, no not, not at all. Not at all. And I think um, for me, the the difference is like, I feel like even Last Jedi was a, trying to appeal to everybody. Um, or at least all, all kinds of audiences. And this is so much more specific, a specific kind of audience. And I think when you get down, when you narrow uh, like a, a story down to like try to appeal to one quadrant or two quadrants instead of all four quadrants, 
you you can get something that's a so much more artful and so much like more uh, has is more deep. It's 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 it, it's it's a great story. It's just so weird that it's everything Star Wars has been so like you know trying to hit all yeah. four quadrants before now. I think I think the thing about Star Wars that I think won't change to your point, Brad, is that idea that Star Wars is um, their stories to help people like make better choices, right? Like they're parables for us to, you know, that, that whole Joseph Campbell thing. And even this, um, even with this different genre sort of bending it, is still going to take us there, right? Like Cassian's ultimate arc is that selflessness that Star Wars has been about since day one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, obviously the the hints of the rebellion growing here and stuff like that is is is, is a very powerful message. And it's something that can, you know, it is universal for sure. And I wonder, I mean, like we're only looking at the first arc too. And and um I got to I got to chat with with Tony Gilroy for Script magazine actually. And he talked about how like how they broke down the structure and the structures really in these three episode blocks and they sort of treated them like like many movies and each director took each of these three story blocks and they they you know, the next episode, we've seen episode four. I don't want to get too much into it, but it does feel totally different than these first three. So maybe we're going to get a different sort of stretching every arc that we get across this season and next. Um, and it's going to have different flavors the same way, different arcs. And, you know, you could look at the the um, the arcs in Clone Wars, like the, you, you know, D-Squad is a world away from the Umbara arc. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brian, do you have you hacked into my computer? Are you looking at my notes? Because this is literally what I was going to say next. <laughs> no, I, I well, um, you you put some really smart notes down there, there Peter. <laughs> and we should probably talk about the director of this these first three episodes, Toby Haynes. He is the guy that did that Black Mirror episode, the USS Callister, which got seven Emmy nominations. He's directed episodes of Doctor Who. In Sherlock, actually, his episode of Sherlock was voted by fans to be one of the best ever. Uh, so he's he's one of these, um, you know, uh, big guys in in like uh, UK uh, TV. And uh, I want to say he was a last minute replacement for for Tony Gilroy, right? Because Tony Gilroy was supposed to go over to the UK to start shooting, but COVID protocols happened, so they're like, we need to get somebody local to do it. So he stepped in last minute for tony gilroy yeah and he did one of a hell of a job here yeah i think yeah there's a lot of heavy lifting in these first three episodes because this is almost like uh an and or origin story of sorts uh you're setting up a lot and I, I feel like he did a really good job uh brad what do you think of the direction of the first three episodes yeah, there's definitely, you know, uh, like I said, a clear style here, um, you know, that uh, it does feel like it was tailored for someone like Tony Gilroy. And, uh, you know, for me, it's um, I didn't necessarily love it while I was watching it because it didn't really feel like there was a lot happening. It's a, it's a lot of setup for the, the payoff that comes later and really lays the ground for, uh, you know, investing in Andor as a character. Um you know, there, there's obviously some fans who are probably already invested in him because of Rogue One, but there's also plenty of people who maybe need a reason to care about him. And I'm not necessarily sure that these first two episodes do a great job of uh, making you care about him. I feel like that comes a lot, uh, comes off a lot better in episode three, especially when you hear um, just like how he talks about like the things he stands for and like um, 
just just the, the the way he presents himself when it comes to being presented with certain choices and and uh opportunities um so so yeah the, these first two episodes aren't exactly my uh my favorite but i will say that there is definitely confidence in how the story is presented because they didn't really feel the need to like rush anything or force anything that feels you know like it was pandering to fans to like keep them invested so it's you know i guess more power to them for that i think it was really smart for them to decide like i was really um when i first got to look at the episodes it was before they made the announcement that they were going to be putting the first three out. So I got to watch the first three before then. And I was like, why wouldn't they go with the third one also? Like nobody's going to be on board with this. And so actually I wrote my first version of the review about the first two episodes Hmm. um, based on the fact like, Hey, stick around. There's a payoff, you know? (laughs) Um, And I had to rewrite it when they, when they changed the whole, the whole production schedule or the release schedule. What what do you guys think about, the flashbacks in these first three episodes, because it almost seems to me like they're building up to some kind of big reveal. I don't quite think there is one there. I love it actually. So like this is there's, it's a parallel structure where we're seeing the tail end of two of Cassian's journeys. Right. Yeah. So like this is, this is Cassian's journey as a kid to get him to Ferrix. And then it's Cassian's journey that gets him off of Ferrix. And and so it opens. uh, The endings are both opening to new chapters of his life. And we see how that moves forward and we see what what what's going to come next. And it ties so many interesting things together um, thematically that he's 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 basically doing the same thing. He's starting over from scratch the way he did the first time. And I don't know, like the the connection of those two moments of those two stories moving in parallel just really hit me in exactly the right way. And I asked, I I, I did get to ask Tony Gilroy about why he structured it this way. And, and he said his origin point was trying to explain Cassian's accent. (laughs) He's like, that was, that was the, that was the starting point for me. Like, I just, I, I think that there was a legitimate reason for him to have that accent and, and I wanted to go for it. And that's where this arc came from. That's hilarious to me that that's the reason for it. Like, I, I, I mean, I guess that you know that's not the whole. Like, he, there didn't need to be a reason to explain this accent, but like that was the starting point for what what you know turned into this. Uh, yeah, it's not like we have to explain British accents in Star <laughs> Wars. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's let's get into it. Okay. Let's let's talk. Let's get into the breakdown. Uh, the show opens with that Lucasfilm animation, which features the new edition of B2 Emo. Is it yeah. Emo or is it EMO? I think everybody's calling him B2 Emo. Emo. Okay. Uh, so the Andor main title comes out. Uh, at first, it feels like a moon or a world eclipsed by the sun. And then that turns into not the Rebellion logo, but a an earlier or a different version of the rebel Alliance starbird is, uh, is there anything here, uh, Brian, like, is, is there a deeper thing here? Is this just a cool spacey way to reveal the title? I think it's just a cool spacey way to reveal the title. And I think it's, it's sort of distinctly separate from the, the, the Phoenix logo that we see in rebels. This is a much more, gritty technological sort of take on that the phoenix that the rebels used 
um, is sort of um, the opposite end of the spectrum. Like the classic rebellion logo is sort of that middle ground between this and that, and that firebird from rebels. And I think that, that um, I think it just says something thematically about like what sort of story we're getting into. Yeah. And um, the rebel Alliance starboard was a design that was created by Sabine Wren in star Wars rebels. It blended uh, the specter symbol an orange starbird and uh Sagrera's like partisans had a symbol sigil um but yeah so anyways uh we we first see andor walking in the rain on orlana one which is a planet introduced into canon in the series so we have never seen this before uh it's also explained on screen that there that we are in the corporate zone, which is not, is the corporate zone talked about a lot in the, like the books and stuff, Brian, I don't really recognize so it much. There's, so this is actually something, this is, this is actually a deep cut. Um, back when Brian Daly did the Han Solo books in the late seventies and early eighties, um, he wanted to keep Han sort of away from the empire and more on the fringes. And so the, bad guys that Han was fighting against were less the empire and more the corporate sector authority. There were some mentions of the corporate sector authority in, um, I want to say the solo adaptation, uh, novelization. And so there's, there's always been the idea of the corporate sector authority, but we've never actually really seen them in action, particularly in the new Canon. We, we did quite a bit in the expanded universe, but it's the idea that, that, you know, it's, it's Vichy, right? It's the, the empire saying like, Hey, you can self-govern, but we run you. And and that's really what's going on with this corporate sector authority. And it speaks a lot to the decay of the Republic as well, where um, you had corporations actually represented on the Senate with the Trade Federation in Phantom Menace. And now it's just like they're controlling whole sectors of space and things like that. And it's like, it's bad news. It's bad news. Interesting. Okay. Uh and thirdly, on screen, the text tells us that we are in BBY5, which is five years before the Battle of Yavin, which is, of course, the battle in Star Wars A New Hope. That was really interesting to me. Why? Um, they've never used that on screen before. Like, that has always been, and especially oh. when I've been working on stuff, that has always been something like, that's a reference for us. They don't use that in the universe. Um, because why would they why would they delineate that around that battle? There were more decisive battles. There were bigger, you know, Empire Day is really sort of, you know, when Palpatine takes over makes much more sense for when um, when you'd start counting there, like after, you know, the the, the Galactic Empire era. Uh, if you were going to change the, 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 the numbering, right. So like battle, uh, five years before the battle of Yavin is something that's really only been relegated to encyclopedias and reference materials. So seeing it on screen was actually a bit of a shock to me. Yeah. And they've even changed that with the sequel, uh, trilogy, right? Like there's a new thing. Isn't there like the new way of counting years or something? Um, I mean, they've done some calendar stuff a little bit here and there, but nothing like nothing in universe. Nothing in the universe, yeah. Um, I guess we should ask, uh, not, not to dwell too much on this, but what else is going on in Star Wars canon at this time in 5 BBY? 
Um, so this is this is um, around some of the same same time that um, Rebels is starting. Mm-hmm. So so there's some parallel there's some parallels there in the galaxy. There's not a whole lot in this area. A lot of the stuff that's been explored in the dark times has been way at the beginning, like with Bad Batch or the Darth Vader comics or the uh, stuff like that, or um, this stuff, uh, like Rebels and stuff. The Tarkin book has some stuff in this era. The uh, Catalyst, the Rogue One prequel, has some stuff in this era. Um, Rebel Rising, the book about Jin, has some stuff in this era. So this is definitely... Around that time, like Galen Erso is is hard at work on the Death Star laser. Jin has been abandoned by Saw Gerrera by this point. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's it's a galaxy that that uh, in turmoil still and under the oppressive boot of the Empire. Yeah, I always find it interesting that Star Wars Rebels was like marketed as watch the beginning of the the rebellion, but then it turned out that like there was already so many rebel skull uh um like sex out there yeah well and that's that's operational it's interesting i wonder how they'll address and this is something that is interesting um cassie and endor actually is fulcrum at one point so fulcrum was an idea introduced in the rebels tv series where ahsoka is a a an agent sort of running imperial or running rebel uh, information and, and spy network kind of stuff as fulcrum and uh, agent callus uses that uh, call sign for a little while. And so does Cassian. And um, if you ever did the, the VR experience that was at Disney property um, where you had to go uh, at Cassian's direction, break into a facility and steal some stuff. Yeah, um, that's during his time as a fulcrum agent. I'm wondering how they're going to play all that part out in this. <laughs> it, it, I guess it'll be explained away in some book at some point. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that um, the structure of this season is that these 12 episodes of season one are going to get us to the end of this fifth year before the Battle of Yavin. And then each three episode arc after that is going to give us a year of Cassian's life leading directly into Rogue One. So they're going to have to either cover it or skip it in a really interesting way. Yeah. Okay. So Cassian makes his way down a set of stairs where on either side there's these giant glass bubbles and there's aliens inside who react to him as he passes by. Brad, I have to ask you, what do you think is going on in these alien glass bubble things peter this is a brothel (laughs) is that the brothel this is absolutely a brothel this is this is a very seedy uh sexy location this is like Uh, i did not take that at all okay Um, no i'm pretty sure this is a brothel this is i I, I mean the the way they're talking about uh you know the 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 i mean the place that he goes is definitely a brothel but you're i think i think that's i think i feel like that's part of it this feels like a red light district kind of area similar to like areas in london and stuff like that where like if you go to london if you're in the red light district and stuff like that they have like these different (laughs) shops and stuff like that where they have models and strippers girls like in windows and stuff and so that that feels like this is the star wars equivalent of that they didn't look that appealing brad 
I, I mean, mean I, I don't want to be alienist here, but yeah, I mean, we we we're just not as enlightened enough to be attracted <laughs> to to uh, intergalactic species, you know. But I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who were very excited by this prospect. <laughs> Um, okay, so a doorman scans Andor, warns him there better be no nonsense, and Cassian enters this lounge. And I got to say, in the terms of like Star Wars cantinas and lounges, I like the look of this place. It has like these triangular hallways, and the booth enclaves are not like you know. Usually, you have a lot of like circles, like circular like uh, booths and stuff. Like these had like a very like triangular, but not like in a imperial galactic you know empire kind of way uh what did you guys think of this uh this i guess lounge or brothel or lounge in a brothel this is one of those things like the first thing i thought was like eh, i guess i'm not watching this with my kid <laughs> right or maybe i will i don't know like actually like at first i was like do i and it's like they skirted around it well enough but then it was like no i think this would just bore her um <laughs> And I think the design was really cool. It it has that classic bar look in a lot of ways, a uh, classic Star Wars bar look in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't know. I was more fascinated by that woman's flat hair. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I like that. Um, it, I will say that, like, I don't think there's anything that happens in this show so far that's like so ad- overtly adult or whatever that a kid couldn't watch this, but I just don't think a kid would be interested in this show. Yeah. That's like, I don't necessarily think I'd keep like if Valkyrie, uh, my seven year old wanted to watch it with me, I'd watch it with her. We'd have discussions about some of this stuff, but like, like, I, I don't think they, don't they, they clearly an brothel, right? Um, I mean, like you would have to, <laughs> like, I think you have to be an adult to know the context to know that it's a brothel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you couldn't even figure out that it was a red light district, and you're a grown man. <laughs> hey, no, no, I uh, <laughs> hey, I understood it was a red light district. I just didn't understand what was going on in the bubbles. Is what I was saying. You sweet, sweet baby. <laughs> I'm just saying the aliens in the bubbles did not look like they were trying to be sexy, and that's that's my. I don't well, know. that's that's just your opinion, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so a hostess approaches Cassian and welcomes him. In the uh, there's this duo of sentry guards across the bar who are upset that they're being they're, they've been there waiting longer and he's getting taken care of. And um, Cassian asks her uh, about a girl from Sinari. Uh, oh wait, what what is the planet called? Canari. Canari, yeah. Canari. Uh, and we learned that Canari is a small mid-rim uh, system, not planet system, which, um, well, that tells me two things. Uh, mid-rim, uh, there's some planets in the mid-rim, like uh, Naboo and Kashyyyk were, in the mi- were mid-rim planets. But when you call something a system in Star Wars, that means uh, it can include a star or planets orbiting it. And a single planet often shares names interchangeably. So Canari is a system that probably means the name of the planet that we see in the flashbacks throughout the first three episodes uh, is it's confusing. There's probably multiple things called Canari, kind of like how there's the moon of Endor is also Endor, right? The Endor Um, system. No. Well, thanks to Kef Beer and the Rise of Skywalker, uh, being the ocean moon of Endor and what we think of as Endor as the forest moon of Endor. It probably has a different name somewhere. And who knows what the hell those the Ewoks call it, those vicious little bastards. 
Uh, okay. Um, it's complicated is what I'm saying. Anyway, so uh, the hostess says that uh, the girl from Canary uh, left several months ago, and she doesn't have any information on where she went or what even is her real name. And uh, Cassian is disappointed, and he heads back through the rain, uh, but is stopped by two those two sentry guards from the lounge, and they threaten to find him and ask for his corpo ID. And um, Cassian offers all the money he has, 300 credits. They just need to take it from his pocket. And it's, it's really a suspenseful scene here where the guards frisk him and even pistol whip him with uh, their blaster. And then Cassian ends up fighting his way out of the situation, but in the process accidentally breaks one of the guards' necks and then realizes uh, he's kind of screwed. He's uh, He looks to be visibly in shock here, and the, and the surviving guard kind of tries to talk his way out of the situation, but Cassian is forced to shoot him point blank with a blaster in the head. I think it's interesting that this whole scene is kind of like mirroring when we first see Cassian in Rogue One. Yeah, like like his growth arc is like, I'm going to murder a dude in an alley because it's mildly inconvenient to me. And his growth arc five years later is, I'm going to murder this dude in the alley because I need to get away with the information. Mildly inconvenient is putting it, I don't know. I don't feel like that's that that's correct, Brian. That guy was pleading for his life, asking for mercy, saying that they could go into the station and come up with a, a story together because he knew he screwed up too. I think he tried. I think he realized that guy was not gonna was not gonna be faithful to what what he was claiming he was gonna do. That may well be. But, he, did, uh, he did not see it. Seemed like a a guard of uh, an officer of integrity is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously he wasn't, but we learn more about that later. Yeah. Uh, Brad, what did you think of this whole sequence? I mean, screw cops, right? I mean, these guys <laughs> are, are space cops and they suck. Yeah. You know, they're they're hanging out at a brothel. They're like, you know, clearly like being instigators. And then they like try to act like they're all offended and stuff when, you know, Andor doesn't even try to like really hassle them. He tries to leave and mind his own business and they just want to be dicks. Uh, so, yeah, man. Cops suck, even in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, no, I'm I'm on board with that. I really loved the cultural relevance of our our current cultural moment with police and how that shook out with this whole corporate sector authority and and particularly Cyril Karn. Yeah, I do, I do want to say you know. I mean, obviously, if you're watching this show and you're listening to this podcast, I, I would hope that you have seen Rogue One. Um, but that scene in Rogue One that opens up that movie is something I think Tony Gilroy wrote for the reshoots of that movie. And um, it, it's the one where he uh, basically an informant gives him some information or something. And he basically shoots him in the back in cold blood. And um, I don't know. It, all I'm saying, Brian, is, is you see a, you see that there's an arc here. Starting out with what we're seeing here for Andor and what we see at the beginning of Rogue One. No, I think it's really smart filmmaking. It's something that Lawrence Kasdan did with with Han Solo, too, actually. In Solo, um, at the beginning of the movie, he's not the sort who's going to shoot first. And he sort of has to learn that with Beckett. And then there's a medium middle ground with Greedo, depending on which version you watch. And then at the end, with that, that face-off with 
um, Ben Solo and Han is sort of that same uh, face off with Beckett, but he doesn't even draw his pistol at that point. And, and it shows this progression in this arc um, in really interesting ways in similar situations. And I really like this echo of that scene with Tibic from the beginning of Rogue One. Yeah. Uh, so Cassian is shell-shocked, shell I guess you'd say, and he runs back uh, to the causeway in the rain, doesn't even bother to put on its hood. He's so shell-shocked, and he takes a, a junky industrial ship off the planet, and we then cut to Ferrix, uh in the Moorland system, and this is a desert world first introduced in the series. So a lot of... I don't know. This is what I'm saying. Like where, like it doesn't usually when we're talking about Star Wars uh, on the this podcast. Usually, like I would go to Brian and be like, Brian, tell me about the Morrowind system. But like this, this show's just making a bunch of stuff up. And and I think that's a function of like they want a clear runway and not have to worry about being anywhere else. Star Wars is really good about encouraging that. Like if you don't want to mess with continuity, just make up your own planet and set it over that direction. Yes. I'm telling you, someone please make the the Soretta planet. Do it. Okay. Um, and <laughs> here we meet this uh, salvage droid, B2 Emo. Uh, I got to admit, this, you know, leading up to this show, we had seen this droid at Comic-Con, at Celebration. Uh, like, he had been on display. Um, I don't know. I think I was expecting something different from the personality of the droid than what we ended up getting. Uh, not to say like it's, I, I don't like him. I, 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 I'm, it's just, it was totally not usually when you get a star Wars droid, you know, you think of beeps and boops or like C3PO or, you know, he, he reminded me of Dio a lot. Really? Yeah. I think that that meekness and that sort of like, abuse victim i can get that i get that um and so he felt like to me like a mix between like a a utilitarian sort of r2 but like with the personality of dio and i kind of keyed in on that and he looks a little bit like the the that that robot from black hole oh yeah uh what's his name is it bob it might be bob i don't remember um, I have him on my droid shelf, but I, I don't. Yeah, there it's it's named Bob. Bob, I love the design here. Much like shorter than most other droids. Um, and uh, of course, the name Emo probably is a play on emo, uh, emotional. Uh, uh, so this was he was created by creature and droid designer Neil Scanlon, and I read this interview with him. That he said, uh, this is the first droid that we built that allows him to be able to do things which we cannot, which we can recognize emotionally. And he also has the ability to shrink down. Uh, he's built for purpose. He's a faithful and uh, friend and companion of Cassian. And he has he is the moral compass to some extent. So um, I, I thought that was interesting that this is the first droid that they had built so that you could recognize the emotion just by how he moves, which I guess is maybe why he's called emo. Um, what did you guys think of uh, Brad? What did you think of B2? 
Yeah, I like him. He's, uh, you know, he's not overtly funny like a lot of the other droids that we see in the Star Wars universe, but he has a bit of a dry uh, sense of humor to him. You know, I like that he, you know, he's not necessarily, he's calling out the fact that like he, he would have to lie to tell people the things that Andor wants him to say. And so I, I like that aspect of it. <laughs> uh, and the droid is voiced by Dave Chapman, who is one of the performers charged with operating BB-8 in uh, the sequel trilogy, and he also uh, was Rio Durant, Durant, and uh, in Solo, also Lady Proxima in Solo, and was uh, Yoda's assistant puppeteer in Last Jedi. So this is a guy that has worked in the creature and droid department for some time at Lucasfilm. Um, so when we first see B2, he detects movement from some creatures nearby, and his body compresses into this compact uh, shield configuration, and I think it looks cute. And uh, the creatures that actually come are – what are these creatures, Brian? I, I'm not sure they're actually Corellian hounds. I think they're hounds in the same sort of general evolutionary – area i mean the same way you've got like loath cats everywhere but they're not loath cats unless they're on lothal so there's there's something similar to that but for dogs and Ryan, yeah Ryan, so I, we, I have a french bulldog and he's in america yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um but i don't know if the breed is corellian like we don't yeah they don't give us any of that they could be they could be ferrix wolves or something like who knows but they, they are a similar design, and it looks like they're the same sort of mock-up with the rubber heads on the dogs. Yeah, I love that they just have real dogs, and they just like have these specially made costumes for them. So uh, one of the dogs pees on him, and he extends a limb that shocks the hound, and uh, good for him. Good for B, uh, sticking little, up himself. Little callback to uh, R2 shocking Wicket in Return of the Jedi. Of course, of course. Uh, so seeing Emo navigate through the wasteland of junk piles really gave me like Wally vibes at first. And uh, there's lots of ships here. All have been kind of like stripped for parts. And uh, B gets to Cassian where he he's asleep in a junk ship that he's uh, in this uh, junkyard. And uh, then we get our first flashback to his childhood a village jungle on Canary, and uh, there seems to be no adults here. It's a village of children uh, that has come alive with commotion. Um, why do you – do either of you have a good theory on why there's only children in this village? I mean, it feels like a uh, – I mean, the vibe is like a Lord of the Fly situation, but I, I have – a suspicion that it has something to do with the the mining accident that happened there and i'm yeah. assuming all of their parents were probably employed by the the empire and doing the mining and whatever went wrong probably killed all their parents and now they're stuck trying to survive on their own yeah it feels like it, like lord of the flies i think is is pretty a, a pretty astute reference but i think mad max beyond thunderdome yeah yeah um kind of kind of gets it a little closer because of that like tech aspect natural disaster and that tech aspect yeah um and 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 so i think i think that's exactly it i think they're stuck here their parents were here they're from canary and you you notice later later in the episode marva's like who who knew you were born on canary so at least as far as cassian knows or cassa as he's referred to in these portions of the 
the story. Um, who knows? As far as he's concerned, he was born here. So so he's a native of this planet, which is closed off by the Empire. And it made me wonder, again, this could be another deep cut. And maybe it's not. But um, there were pretty significant genocides that occurred on planets where Death Star construction happened or material that was taken for the Death Star happened, whether that was Jetta and the kyber crystals and the destruction there, whether that was Geonosis and the uh, genocide of the Geonosians after the sort of rebellion that they led during the construction of the, the first Death Star um, that saw investigates in Rogue One or not Rogue One, in Rebels, in the lead-up to Rogue One. Um, so maybe this could be one of those genocides. And that, and and this is actually something that was really fascinating to me. If this is related to those other genocides that happened, that Cassian's life has been marked and impacted by the creation of the Death Star from the very beginning. And that's ultimately his doom as well. I like and that. There's, there's obviously also, I think, you know, I mean, um, because you have someone like uh, Diego Luna at the center of this story, uh, and, you know, the fact that we mentioned, you know, explaining, you know, his character's uh, accent, there's likely some very clear real world ties and uh, thematic elements that deal with being a refugee and immigration, things like that, especially with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, rich people and oppressive regimes taking advantage of uh, both migrant and immigrant labor to get things done. That they need to get done without really much care for the people themselves. Yeah. And, and making them disposable. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things I think interesting about this idea is, so did the Canari, Canarians, uh, did their parents that died in the mining accident, they were, I assume, worked in the mine? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So they were able to use technology, right? Like it seemed like they were controlling, we see later, like there's all this equipment that's been dilapidated. Um, but it seems like the the Canarian children that we see in this flashback seem very tribal, very like, um, I don't know, like, uh, like it seems like more of an allegory to like a, like a, like a native American or, well, we don't necessarily know how long they've been on their own. And secondly, just because like your parents know how to use the technology that allows them to do the job that they're assigned to, doesn't mean that they have the, the money to be able to have that kind of technology on, on their own to be able to teach their kids how to use it or to even be I think aware of it. I think yeah, they could have been like slaved kind of is, thing. Is if you're, well, I mean, that's definitely something the Empire used. I mean, look at how they treated the Wookiees through their, um, through the canon in that era as well. But you've got a group of kids who whose parents have all died. Like, say you're living in a city, all the adults are gone. Like, are those kids going to know how to operate the power plant? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm, other, I'm just saying more so like it seems like they don't have technology like, you know, they're using blow darts. Well, and But I think I think it's because like a lot of that ran out. Like I think there's it's some there's something really telling about the close up of their clothes and the shoes that they're wearing. Yeah, there's a lot of makeshift stuff happening there. Yeah. And, and it's it's stuff that's not sized for them. And it's stuff that sort of like kids would be able to figure out. And I really like actually what this says. Um, I think Lord of the Flies is really. It, it's really fascinating as an allegory, but like, I don't think kids operate that way. Right. Like, I don't think kids turn on each other like that uh, to the degree that they would in Lord of the Flies. Um, and I think them pulling together and creating a tribe 
out of that makes a lot more sense. And it makes a lot more sense for the culture that someone like Cassian's going to come from, uh, where he's actually going to give his life for something as big as the rebellion and that brighter future for the galaxy that he never had. I mean, I think Showtime's Yellow Jackets might disagree with you there, but <laughs> they can disagree with me all they want. I will say that I also like that we don't get subtitles for the Canarian language and we're just left to like make out what is happening from visual cues. It's interesting, actually, this created a little bit of frustration among some of the members of the Slash Film staff who were <laughs> watching the screeners and like doing stories because we thought that it, um, some of us thought that it was maybe a mistake that they hadn't like finished the screeners and put the subtitles on there. But then, to be fair, I think Disney did that once before. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I, feel, I think some people were worried that they were missing something, but it was it's clearly, uh, obviously now we know a uh, an intentional choice. It, it, it reminded me a lot, actually, of have you, have you two seen the movie Hell in the Pacific? No, I have not. Um, Hell in the Pacific is a really terrific World War II era movie starring Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune. And the two of them are both um, uh, uh, fighter pilots that go down on the same island during World War II. And Toshiro Mifune doesn't speak a lick of English and Lee Marvin doesn't speak a lick of Japanese and they have to at first war with each other to try to murder each other but then work together together to get off the island and they don't subtitle anything um, so even when you turn the subtitles on Toshiro Mifune's Japanese language here in the United States doesn't get subtitled conversely the same thing in Japan where they released it there Lee Marvin's dialogue doesn't get subtitled um, and it's supposed to like, I think it's a really interesting effect that's very purposeful on the part of the filmmakers to add to that, that otherness of, or that primitiveness of who these people are. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So here a huge ship crashes down on the planet and, uh, young Cassian is called Cassa here and he holds onto a, a, a young girl who woke him up. Is this girl his sister? I think so. I think um, watching it repeatedly, um, that shot of him leaving um, and sort of looking back at her and the camera sort of pulling back, framing it like it would be a memory makes me believe it very much is his sister. And that's sort of the last time he saw her as they're heading out to check out the, the ship. And it's such a really striking shot. But I think the filmmaking is very clear, actually, at least to me, that this is definitely his sister. And he's having those growing pains. Like, I don't want to hang out with my sister and stuff like that. But then later in life, he's like, oh, I really screwed that up. Yeah, no, I, th that's what I took from it as well. Um, so back in 5BBY, uh, B2EMO gives Andor some back to rap and learns uh, he learned from uh, B2 that Brazo was looking for him while he was gone the previous night. So he he makes P B2 lie for him, claiming the droid doesn't know him, doesn't know where he is. If anybody asks, it is clear that this is not an easy task for, for B2. And uh, Cassian goes into town, and it's a... Uh, small city built on bricks that have seems to have seen better days and um can we talk for a second about how great it is to see like these big scale like locations that clearly don't look like they were filmed on a soundstage with a you know stagecraft screen behind it 
I mean, mean yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, like there, there are certain things that are just they're they're clearly more more tangible. Uh, but like you said earlier, you know, I don't want to like necessarily you know disparage the volume because I think that um, Filoni and and Favreau have especially done a great job on the Mandalorian of utilizing the volume uh, in a way that maximizes its potential, but also doesn't overutilize it. Um, and doesn't ever really feel super cheap. I think Book of Boba Fett struggled with that a little bit. Uh, I think Marvel has struggled with that a little bit with Thor: Love and Thunder. Um, yeah. But you know, there is there's j- just as there's no, you know, like you're always gonna like seeing uh, practical, you know, effects for creatures and monsters than you are entirely digital characters. No matter how good those digital characters are, there's just something that's a little bit extra magical. Uh, about seeing it practically and having it be tangible and actually actually in front of you so you can see uh, and touch it. And so I, I think the volume is a happy medium between that. But like, yeah, seeing seeing some of these real sets, you know, it's uh, it's it's cool to have that sense of scale and know that it was actually created, you know, with with craftsmanship. And I also want to be clear that I'm not saying the uh, that stagecraft is bad. I think it's a great tool. I just don't think it's a tool that like it's not the only tool. Right, like, yeah, and it's a tool that still requires finesse and care, and like you really have to know how to use it the right way. Yeah. Um. So Cassian watches as an army of workers pour out of this cool circular door, where like these manhole covers like both go in either direction. I'm not sure how practical or why that happens, but it looks cool. And each are claiming their gloves on a wall of hundreds of gloves. Another cool image that I think probably you know came from some uh, concept artists that just thought it was going to look cool and it, it looks cool. Um, one of the workers there is Brazo who Cassian forces to be his alibi. And I love how Brazo just adds to the story to explain Cassian's visible injuries. Um, so uh, Brazo rides off with half a dozen other workers on this open air standing tram vehicle. Um, so what does Brazo do? Like, is he? I guess we see him later, and he's like a construction worker. So, no, they, this is a salvage operation. This whole planet's a salvage operation. They bring stuff, and this gets explained sort of obliquely with the scenes with Bix later. And and basically, the economy around this town is that people bring in bits of salvage, and these guys pull out all the wiring, and they they salvage every bit they can, and folks like Cassian go in and, and sort of like hold back some of the better pieces, which is actually what causes some of that friction between he and Bix because she assumes that the Pathfinder unit he got is something that he took from one of her salvage jobs. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really love that scene with Brasso, like the, the whole, like you, you, you grew indignant and I helped you to your chair. Like that whole, <laughs> it's such like, it's some of the best dialogue in any star Wars. Uh, it's just so good. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so at the corporate security headquarters on Morolana One, uh, Chief Hein tells Inspector Cyril to drop the investigation as not being uh, – they, they basically don't want to bring unwanted eyes of the Empire. And he argues that uh, you know they were at an expensive brothel. They shouldn't have been there. And they clearly probably harassed this guy, which they did. Uh, which they shouldn't have done. So, you know, these are bad guys. It sucks that they died, but they were clearly up to no good. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the chief here is played by Rupert 
Van Sittart, uh, who was in Braveheart and Game of Thrones. And Cyril here is played by Kyle Soler, who uh, has mostly been in a bunch of British productions, despite uh, being an American. Um, so uh, Cassian walks into a store and to the back where the mechanic is working in a workshop. And this is Bix. Uh, he needs her to contact her friend so he can sell off his NS9 Starpath unit. Um Brian, has has there ever been an NS9 Starpath unit mentioned in Star Wars canon? I'm guessing not. Indeed, there has. Oh, there has. There has. The Starpath unit is something that was first mentioned in Mike Stackpole's book, I, Jedi, as a piece of an Imperial Star Destroyer on... Uh, well, it wasn't an Imperial Star Destroyer. In I, Jedi, it was Booster Tarek's Errant Venture, which is a... Uh, which is a red converted Star Destroyer that's actually a casino... <laughs> um, and the Aaron Venture's gotten some some play uh, recently. In I want to think I, I want to say it was Kenobi that that name dropped the Aaron Venture, or no, it was um, <clears throat> Shadow of the Sith. Um, Adam Christopher's book that sort of bridged um, Rise of Skywalker and Luke and Lando's stories about Rey and Ochi of Bestoon and that whole situation. Uh, mentioned the errant venture in the canon as well, which is just a big star destroyer that had been converted by a notorious scoundrel and sky pirate named Booster Tarek into a casino. That is cool. I need to read that yeah. book. Um, I, I started it, but I have not finished it. Uh, but okay, uh, so uh, Bix Colleen, I guess is how you uh, say her last name. Uh, she's played by Adria Arjana who was in Pacific Rim, Uprising, Six Underground, True Detective, Morbius, Father of the Bride, the, the recent one that I heard was not so good. Uh, but yeah, I, I think she has great chemistry with uh, Cassian in the show. What, yeah. what do you guys think of Bex? She, she was also anathema in Good Omens. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the, the, the chemistry is great. I think she's just delightful. Um, okay, so the shop clerk comes to check in on her, and Cassian immediately realizes there's more going on to that relationship. And Cassian is immediately worried that she's told him about his past, and she promises, "quote He knows nothing about any of it." Um, this is this is this like all this stuff sows all of these seeds that that you don't real like. I think. There's a lot of modern storytelling and a lot of modern filmmaking where these details wouldn't en en matter, right? They wouldn't matter. They wouldn't add up to anything. But every single thread that gets established that pays off in episode three is stuff that happens in these few scenes, right? It's like um, the murder and how they're supposed to handle the murder because it's going to end poorly for them. The... Um, the stuff with Bix and the relationship with the, the love triangle there, the potential love triangle or whatever that is, Cassian trying to unload the star path unit and the desperate situation he's in like this, these scenes like really cook in, insofar as setting up everything in a really great way. And it's got a way of the dialogue cutting to all of those issues really well. Like Tony Gilroy is just a really great dialogue writer and it's yeah. Like, 
I really like I really like the the energy that these scenes have, even though it 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 would be classified by some as slow. I would I would argue that it's more deliberate than slow. I think it's slow and deliberate, but <laughs> that's my take on it. But I do want to ask you one thing, Brian. Why is Cassian so worried about her telling him about his past? Like, I don't think anything even presented in the first three episodes like makes it out like his past was somehow special or remarkable or in any way would would because be something he knows, that he knows um when he starts asking around for a canary girl and then the murder happens he knows that that's okay, something yeah. that can tie him to it fair enough fair enough okay so uh this guy is tim carlo that's tim with two m's because that somehow makes it more star wars Brad, what do you think of the, the name Tim in Star Wars canon? I think it's probably one of the most creative names that they've come up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, James McArdle, I think, uh, is the person who plays Tim. And uh, did you guys know that he was also in Force Awakens? Oh. It's a character called, named Niv Lek. Uh-huh. I don't know who Niv Lek is. I didn't look it up but I'm guessing it's a background character. It must have been before he started getting more attention as an actor because uh, he, yeah. he recently had a good stint in uh, Mayor of Easttown. Oh. oh, man. He was one of the pilots in Poe's uh, assault on Starkiller base. He was he uh, he uh, reacted to Elo Asti's death. There's actually Sorry. a lot of people in the show that have been in other Star Wars things, and it's kind of weird but at the same time i think it's also like people in different departments like the bartender in that lounge was actually a character i think maybe in the last jedi and and in um in the casino i think jago <laughs> uh, luna was in rogue one right <laughs> yes <laughs> c- c- correct brad correct <laughs> uh but yeah so there's a lot of a lot of actors playing multiple roles in the star wars universe and and i've never played one role what, what the heck guys what the heck um sp- sp- spread the love is what i'm saying uh anyways instead of uh closing the case deputy inspector cyril continues to dive in uh during his the chief's absence and uh nurchi stops Cassian in the street asking for his deposit back. He brings over this huge alien creature to physically threaten him. This is something that I feel like didn't get followed up in the next two episodes, did it? Uh, it did, just as in that that he obviously owes money a lot around places, and you can see how he's dodging this guy, but making sure Brazo gets his money, right? Like this guy, it's like, oh, everything's in play. You'll get it. But when he goes to Brasso, he's like, Marv is going to have your money. And so it's it's really a scene to help show that contrast of who he cares about and who he doesn't and where his moral compass is. Yeah. Uh, so Tim follows Bix, but ends up losing her. She climbs up a silo in the back of a storefront and ends up sending an encryption sim- signal out to her contact. And uh, the analyst tells Cyril they have found nothing. So he orders that they put a bulletin out looking for you know, Cassian. Uh, they don't know it's Cassian, but the guy, the guy that ended up killing those two guys. And uh, Cassian, when, Cassian, meanwhile, asks Pegua, there's a lot of names in this show. 
A lot of new names. Uh, Ask Pegla if he can borrow the ship again. And the answer is no. And we cut to a flashback. Uh, the children put on war paint. They use ash to like put war paint on. And they hike up into the jungle. And uh, the little girl, possibly Cass's sister, uh, gives him a caring stare as they, they leave. And we see... Uh, the remains of this massive quarry, a huge crater with toppled, dilapidated machinery. And we talked about that earlier. But I thought I thought that like uh, pullback was kind of stunning to see how huge it was. And um, yeah. yeah, no, that was that was some good use of scale. And it, it made me feel like maybe that was something that they used stagecraft for or at least a blue screen. I heard that they didn't use uh, stagecraft at all in this show. So that was probably a blue screen. Then. Yeah, um, I, think I, think, might- I think that they I, I think that someone came out and said that that wasn't entirely true. That was like uh, the initial story. But like, I think that they used it very sparingly, uh, like they used it for when they do like hyperspace outside of like ship windows and stuff like that. So I, I, just, I just don't think they used it for any like major set extensions. Um, but uh, but if they did here and there, like use it. But, you know, m- most of the time it was like actual tangible sets. Yeah, I just assumed like uh, this was shot in the UK, right? Am yeah. I am I correct on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just assume that the stagecraft uh, set, uh, set, uh, stages that they have are all over here, and there's probably not one on Pinewood or wherever they filmed it. But maybe maybe I'm completely wrong on in that assessment. Um, yeah, I feel like that they they probably have their own over there now, because yeah. they shot Obi Wan over there too. Oh yeah, they did, didn't they? Okay then. Um, so we we filmed. Re- they filmed Solo out there too, and Solo used Solo was sort of like the pioneering use of stagecraft for those ship exterior stuff. Oh yeah, like the outside of the Falcon and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You are. You guys are completely right. I'm wrong on this one. Um, but there was that quote. Who was it? Like, it was a Tony Gilroy or someone that claimed that they didn't use stagecraft at all um, on the production, and then a lot of VFX guys got like angry about it. Um, so we've reached the end of uh, of episode one. We're beginning episode two here. A man wearing earmuffs walks to the top of this bell tower, and then he bangs two hammers into a bell. It doesn't resemble a bell, uh, but it's made out of best car steel, guys. I know that because the audio description tells me that. So I don't know why. It's a really expensive bell. I know. I was going to say, like, why doesn't someone just go up to the top of that? that tower and steal that because the best car steals is worth a lot of money, but yeah, I guess it's too heavy. Anyways. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is like fantastic imagery, especially to open up an episode. Um, but I'm left wondering, and I, I'm going to throw this to you, Brian, what, what, like, I feel like there's something more than this just being fantastic imagery. I, th- I feel like there's something story wise that this is saying with this, uh, this bell tower thing. It's a wake up call. That day is a wake up call, right? Because that's when everything starts coming around and it's, it's sort of like the bigger, um, I don't know. This is me doing that close read where I'm like, <laughs> the green light in Gatsby means this. But what I'm saying is um, like in a galaxy, which is filled with all this technology, why do we need a man to like manually go up there and like ring a bell? Like, I feel like, it seems weird in the Star Wars universe, but I I like it. I, I I don't dislike it, but it just seems like a weird. Like it seems like a choice that someone had to like 
argue for and i'm wondering what the reason was other than it it's, being visually cool i mean like i like i do i think thematically i think i think as far as the the metaphor goes right it plays into the intimidation tactics later that the people on the street use against the cops yeah the, the corporate sector cops right where they're banging on things and so this is that metaphorical wake-up call to all of them uh that this day is going to be different at least in 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 the narrative text um, and that that reminds me a lot of of um, samurai pictures, too. I really love those moments where well, we could talk about that later when we get to that part. OK, uh, we meet this older woman. She's named Marva and she's up with B2 waiting for Cassian. And she's played by Fiona Shaw, who uh, also played uh, one of the Jersleys in Harry Potter. She was in True Blood. She was also in Super Brothers, uh, Super, Super Mario, Mario Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. yeah. That's King Koopa's wife. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Cassian comes home and lies to her about what he's been up to. And she clearly knows that. And B reads the bulletin. And she's always she she's like, I've always told everybody that you were born on fest and uh interrogates him about who else knows anything and she's worried that the, the woman that she's been that he's been with is going to tell someone and guess what she's right so um uh i think that my favorite part of this scene was there's this great relatable moment where cassian's trying to get information uh because bix called and he's like trying to get information on bix from b2 emo and marva is just like yelling at him and he's like shut up i need to like hear and it just like feels like very relatable to like uh many situations i've been in where i'm like trying to listen to one thing and someone's telling me something from the other side and it's like i i can only do, hear one thing at once um so he meets bix and she, she tells him that the buyer will be here in the morning and Tim sees the bulletin and follows Bix and sees her at the bar meeting Cassian. And this is after she told him that she couldn't, she was too tired to go out. So of course, Tim goes to the console and contacts the authorities. And uh, is this the first time we've seen that in Star Wars Galaxy? They have like video phone booths. I love that they have video phone booths. Um, I think this might be planet planet specific. Um, <laughs> I can't think of any other time where something like this has happened on screen, but I feel like there's been moments of this in books and comics. Yeah. Uh, Cyril is excited that they now have a suspect. Uh, the brothel hostess is brought in to confirm that the whole scan of Cassian is the same as the man that was in the lounge that night. But everything I just said is accomplished without showing what I just said. You just see him looking at the holoscan and then the hostess walks in and then Cyril looks at her and smiles. And I feel like that's just such good visual storytelling. So um, so hats off to whoever wrote that or maybe even the director. I just like it's just like so. Uh, what do you call it? Minimal. Like you don't need you're cutting out all the fat that like would normally be there, and it's just it's all told in like one look. Um, it's it's that pure cinema Hitchcock talked about, where you're telling story purely in the juxtaposition of images in relation to the context of the story. Yeah. 
so Bix surprises Tim at his place and uh, they get intimate. And again, I love how we learn all the information we need to visually. Nothing said with her going into the bedroom and he's going to follow. But before he follows, he gulps at the realization that he was wrong, that she was, you know, cheating on him with Cassian and uh, probably screwed up by sending the tip in. But that's not going to stop me from having sex with her, apparently, is what Tim thought. At least that's my reading of that one, <laughs> that one look. But I, I like when you can get that much out of like just like one, you know, shot of someone. Um, so Cyril talks to one of the officers, Sergeant Linus, who is very enthused about this mission, basically reinforcing his beliefs and... Um, I also like that the show is at first starting off with us seeing both sides of the story, like a uh, story of Cassian and also the story of, uh, I hate to call it the bad guy, but like, um, it's not really a bad guy. This is, this is a person. This is an, um, person that is trying to do the right thing. You know, there's two dead officers and he's trying to catch the person responsible and uh, I think we're going to see uh, see how that goes from uh, being someone trying to do the right thing to, uh, I don't know, maybe going off off the rails. Uh, he's, he's taking a, I mean, like, sure, he's trying to do the right thing, but he's he's doing it the most fascist way as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, without a doubt. Um and I also like the talk here about half measures and how it's causing pockets of fermenting. And it's basically describing the rebellion. And it's like uh, how all the power control and the fear system of the empire basically leads to its demise. Which I think is something you said in the past before, Brian. Yeah, yeah. And and I love this actor too. He reminds me of like John C. Riley in in Gangs of New York almost. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, so Cassian uh, takes the Imperial Star Path unit. He hid inside one of the junk's vehicles in the junkyard. And uh, the vehicle almost looks like it's the outside of... Um, if you've ever been in uh, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance, uh, at the end you take these like shuttles, these short-range evacuation vehicles uh, from the First Order Star Destroyer. It almost looks like one of those. It doesn't quite match up. I, I looked at pictures. Uh, but anyways, he's in there, and uh, we have this moment with Cassian thinking pensively about uh, something, and he's holding a blaster. And uh, I guess it, I'm going to guess it's no coincidence that he's shown half in darkness, half in light. And uh, back to Canari, uh, the jungle, uh, we see the group of children uh uh, in the audio description, it, it calls them alphas. So it's the alpha children. Uh, they send one girl down to the shipwreck as they follow from behind. And uh, there's this yellow gas coming out of the ship. Uh, what do you think that is? The yellow gas. Because we also see like the faces of some people from the ship later. And they also have like yellow faces. I think that's that's poison. Poison. 
I don't think that's an alien thing. I think that that's they've been poisoned by something. Which is another one of those things that sort of connected it to me to some of that genocide against Geonosis is saw in Rebels was looking for the poison gas, basically, that they used to exterminate the Geonosians. And so the Empire sort of experimenting with that or having that sort of tangentially tied to there. Those are the, the dots I was connecting in my head. But I also have an over-imagination overactive imagination connecting dots in star wars so maybe that's unrelated entirely but that's that's the only other part of the star wars canon that i can think of that has that sort of element to it and so that's that's where my mind went what do you think was happening on the ship though like uh why did it crash are we ever going to learn that i'm guessing not um how does that like why was there poisoning on uh, on the ship I mean, they're Imperials. They create weapons of mass destruction in a whole bunch of different ways. So and they were science. They were scientists too, so they could have been researching that that biochemical warfare stuff. Yeah, they have like patches on their shoulders. It's like a hexagonal Which, patch. Another another one of those things that connects Cassian's story to Jin's because that's the sort of uh, department Galen Erso's in. Uh, fair point. Uh, so a a small flat ship. With fold-out wings, approaches Ferrix, and we see uh, Stellan Skarsgård's character, Luthen Rael, uh, for the first time. But we see him from behind in the cockpit. He lands and exits the ship, wielding a cane that almost looks like a lightsaber. It doesn't have a blade, but it has like a white, uh, you know, almost like a like if you buy a lightsaber in Galaxy's Edge, a white blade. Um, so he uses uh, an optical instrument to see what I at first thought was a ship of the corporate security headquarters landing in town, indicating that they didn't have a lot of time, but uh, we see them land later. So I'm, I'm guessing this is just showing how far away he, uh, he needs to get to in, into town and he has to take uh, one of those um, transports. Uh, so we can see uh, the bell ringer and the bell tower once again. And I love that's almost like this, it almost doesn't just seem like a job. It seems almost like a ritual kind of thing. Like he does like these movements as if it's like a, uh, like after he rings it, he like closes his eyes and stands in a certain way. I, am I reading too much into that? No, I think this is one of those things that Brian was talking about earlier too, that like ties to samurai films and even Westerns, you know, there's, there's somebody ringing that bell, keeping, uh, keeping time for the town and there's, you know, sometimes there's a ritual that's involved with it as well. Yeah. Uh, B2 thinks Cassian leave, leaving is a bad idea. Meanwhile, Marva, Marva, yeah, I can't talk. Marva uh, notices B is missing and she sees Cassian's room is empty. And there we actually find a stuffed Bantha toy, which honestly feels like the only star Wars reference that's kind of like been shoved into the series so far. Um, and, uh, she notices and picks up a pipe, a metal pipe, but it's decorated with feathers, which brings us to another Canary jungle flashback. And, uh, I just gotta say, I love the idea of like an indigenous tribe, but mixed with salvage pieces of technology that has been like left over. That's like such a cool imagery that I don't think we've seen much in sci-fi. But maybe Brian can, can tell me that we, we've seen it a lot. No, I, I mean, like, 
not any more than than usual. Yeah. No, I think I think it is cool and and unique enough in Star Wars that it has an effect. Yeah, uh, she notices and uh, well, okay, yeah, it's, it's the pipe. Uh, we see the dead crew members on the uh, from the ship crashed on on the ground, and they have masks on, but their skin seems to be yellow. That's probably from the poison that you guys uh, mentioned. And uh, one of the crewmen is alive and fires at her with his blaster, and the alphas pepper him with darts using their pipe staffs, blow darts. Um, and uh, the lead alpha girl is heavily wounded. But Cass is in shock, and he looks back at the ship and gives it a vengeful look. And uh, we cut to a worker and his uh, alien coworker are talking about the bulletin, and they look up Canari uh, on, on, I guess, like the intergalactic, uh, the, the galaxy interwebs. And we learn that it has been abandoned after an imperial mining disaster, and the planet has been considered toxic. But we know it's not toxic because they've been living there. Um, Cassian inquires about an immediate run to Tasser uh, with no questions asked. And the officers are briefed on Cassian and uh, the the mission as they jump through hyperspace to Ferex. And Cyril attempts to give an inspirational speech, but is obviously doesn't come out the way he had planned or what he envisioned. Uh, and I feel like he knows here that he's not the leader he envisions himself to be. What did you guys make of this whole speech debacle? He's bad at his job. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Luthen finds himself on, stuck on a transport ship to the city with a chatty passenger, um, who I think gives him the idea that they could use a speeder to get back to uh, his spaceship later on and uh cassian strides with purpose through the salvage yard as we cut to black it's the end of the second episode guys we like went through the second episode really fast there is there anything uh before we get to episode three is there anything like i missed that i might have glossed over hey is it just me or does the guy in the bell tower look like clancy brown i thought that too it's not but i thought it did oh so who is it I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I just don't think it's Clancy Brown. Gotcha. I didn't see him in the credits or anything. Okay. Because I looked, because I was like, is that Clancy yeah, Brown? Yeah, it really did look like him. <laughs> I did not look him up, so I don't I don't know who he is. Um, okay, uh, on to episode three. We're in the home stretch here, guys. Uh, the welders... Take there, a- there was one thing. Oh. Um, there is some significance to that bombed out ship that he goes to to like stash stuff at and meet B2 Emo at. Oh, what time. is it? So that's the ship that Marva, like, it ties into the end of the episode, the third episode. That is the same ship that Marva brought him to Ferrix to in the first place from Canari. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, you can see some of the the details on it um, uh, with, like, that, that checkerboard pattern on the like the compartment he uses and then some of the, the markings and stuff. It's, it's the same ship. So how did he get that Imperial piece of technology? If he didn't salvage it from Bix, is that something that he went to steer guard, which is a place we don't know anything about and have never heard of before. Okay. So that's, we're all, we're taking that all as, as truth. Well, that's the Imperial security bureau. Like uh, the ISB seems to think that that's the truth. 
Oh yeah. Okay, you're saying they from when they were reading off what Cassian had done previously. Well, no, 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 no. Um, later in the episode, uh, oh, maybe that's episode four. Um, the yeah, the ISB stuff's all episode four. But when Luthien, uh, Luthen tells him, like, I know you got it on Steerguard, like he knows where it came from. Yeah, yeah. And so that is he's telling the truth about maybe not all the details about how he just walked in and, and got it, but that is where he got it from. Okay. So, uh, jumping into the third episode, I will say that so far the episodes don't end on like a big cliffhanger that like makes me like, Oh, I need to see the next episode now. Um, in, in a way that, uh, other TV shows do it. They feel more like dramatic, like, uh, I don't know, ringing the dramatic bell or something. It, it doesn't, um, has Tony written a lot of TV? I don't think he has. I think this is the first. And I think like, I don't know, ringing that, that, that dramatic bell at the episode end of episode two actually reminded me of Hemingway's for whom the bell tolls, honestly. And it has that that literary allusion to it. And I, but again, maybe that's just me going like, "Wow, you're a literary nerd and a cinematic nerd." Like maybe you're I don't know. I always worry I'm I'm looking too much into this stuff and and pulling that stuff out too much. Brian, I love it anytime you read too much into stuff. So keep at it. Uh, okay, Let, let's start on episode three here. Uh, welders take apart uh, this old ship uh, as like the ship with like a scaffold on cables, lowers. I don't know. It's like this really like epic uh, shot of like how they like are uh, taking apart these ships and stuff. And we see Grasso uh, notices Cassian watching from the side and he goes over to him and he uh, Cassian tells Gasso that he's leaving today and he, he asked him to keep an eye on Marva for him and be uh, cut back to the jungle in Canary for another flashback. And I'm going to, I'm going to combine a bunch of the stuff here so that we're not just cutting back and forth and saying, I'm just going to say what happens here. So uh, Cass wanders through the uh, crash ship and sees a bunch of dead yellow face crew members before he finds this control room. And in the control room, it's like the first time him seeing anything like this. It's like a polished ship with glossy black control panels. And he sees his reflection for maybe the first time. And he starts like uh, destroying the control. Why do you think he destroys the room when he sees his reflection? Do you think he's just mad about what happened? The the blaster shot outside? Or what do you think is going on there? (laughs) I think this is the first time he's coming face to face with the Empire. Right. Like this is this is um, these are the people responsible for killing the person that he was that that just the the girl that just died. These are the people responsible for killing his family. These are the people who are responsible for his plight. Um, And this is them. And he sees this reflection of himself in in them. And again, this is metaphorical, too. Like he's staring at a reflection of himself in that imperial situation and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like seeing that in himself. I, I, I like that reading of it. Okay, so uh, I, 
we see a new glossy version of B2 that leads Marva and uh, she has this partner with him. Do, do we ever learn who that guy is? I don't think we do. We, we learned who who is. Marva has like. Oh, a, that's Clem. Oh, that's Clem. Okay. That's Clem Andor, which which um, I only knew because I watched I, I read it in the credits. <laughs> I was going to say, um, how do you know that? Because I didn't, I didn't see that and, at all. And that bit of information. So he's the guy that got uh, hung in the town square later. And later. that bit of information leads into information that you're going to want to hold on to for episode four. Okay, then. Okay, then. Uh, so they hear noises of cast trashing the control room and they tell him that he shouldn't be there, but he doesn't understand. Um, they say a Republic ship is orbiting the planet already. If they leave him there, uh, the Imperials are going to kill him. And, uh, they decide to put him to sleep and take him back with them. And we're going to cut back to, uh, BBY five again, and uh, the shuttle ferry lands, and Luthen gets uh, away from the chatty passenger and finds Bix in the city, and uh, the the corpo officers take shuttles down to the planet. The camera is in tight on Cyril, who uh, I I wrote in my notes. He has like an unsure look on his face. What, what do you, what do you guys think was going on in his mind as he was? taking the drop shift down, down to the planet. Like there's something like it, the, the camera was on him and I, I, I wasn't sure how to read his expression. He's in over his head. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. Uh, so the technical team dis, uh, disembarks the shuttles and the locals are staring at them, including Gasso. Um, we, the Luthen's cane detracts kind of like a lightsaber and he puts it away which makes me ask you guys, Brad, why does Luthen need a cane if he doesn't need the cane? Bro, he's in disguise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but not put on a front. Doesn't want anyone to know how much more capable he is than he really <laughs> is. It's Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity walking on crutches. There you go. Good, solid reference. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So Cyril and team go to Cassian's home. They search, they ransack it. They find B2 emo there and interrogate him. And uh, B2 wasn't going to give up the information. I love the emotion that we can see from him, how he sinks in. But uh, unfortunately, Cassian takes the this moment to radio from his walkie talkie or whatever he has, his comm link. And uh, it's the worst possible moment. And now they can trace him and now they know where he is. And yeah, it was a fun scene. Um, uh, so the neighbors are worried that Marva uh, about Marva, and they yell at the officers. And uh, Roman sees what's happening, runs and tells Bix, and she realizes someone ratted him out. And she quickly realizes it was Tim, Tim with two M's. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 everything starts coming together in this episode. Like it's it's really like one after another. The scenes like are just like. Okay, we all everything that's been leading up to this uh this episode it's, is coming together. Gilroy's not uh he's not a uh a TV writer, he's he's a film writer. Yeah. And if this was a film, we'd be giving him the benefit of the doubt about building all that stuff up leading to these threads, but because it's divided into episodes, I think I think that's why they decided to release the first 3 at the same time so you could binge through them and go, "Oh, that was a movie essentially." 
And then we know the the cadence. I think this was maybe the problem with the Clone Wars movie where it was like it was so episodic and they just scotch taped the episodes together. When you go back and revisit that and know the the production cadence and storytelling of Clone Wars, it doesn't it doesn't seem so it doesn't seem as weird as it did the first time you saw it. And it was just like now we understand the context of how the storytelling is going. And I think that's why future episodes in that week to week wait is going to be a lot better than than it would have been if if we would have had to wait three weeks for these three episodes to come out. I hope so. Um, okay, so the next scene, Andor meets Luthen in an abandoned factory, and they negotiate. This whole scene is, like, amazing, just, like, the back and forth between them. Luthen isn't sure that he's an, he's an imperial, imperial spy or the real thing. I think he thinks he's the real thing, but he's just saying that to say that to him. And Cassian claims that he actually uh, went in himself and got it himself, and Luthen is in disbelief as if, uh, it's thought to be near impossible that anybody could do that. He offers them more credits to tell him how exactly he did that. And Cassian explains, he just walked in wore disguise acted like he belonged. They are so proud of themselves. They can't imagine anyone would ever infiltrate and steal from them. And, uh, at this point, Luthen makes the pitch for Cassian. He, 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 I mean, he wants the box, but, what he really wants is he wants Cassian to join him. Join him for what? We don't know yet. I mean, I guess we can read into it that it's the rebellion, but technically we don't know yet. And uh, he explains he knows all about him. He knows all about his history. He knows about his father. He knows about his mother. He knows all the details. Um, and I I, I, I I, guess the peak of this scene is the, you know, don't you – want to fight these bastards for real uh, this, which is a really powerful moment this entire scene uh, i i loved uh yes the, the way diego luna delivers that little monologue of his the way he talks about the empire man you feel it like he he hates them uh and it's yeah this it, it's just a, such an awesome scene I, I this is the when i really started to be like oh okay this is getting good now <laughs> brian what did you think of this whole se- sequence I think that's I think I think I had the same reaction where it's like it's very much this is where it started to feel Star Wars too actually with the way the scene played out with the dialogue and the wanting to hit back the Empire but then the way um, the swinging uh, equipment started playing out it made it a very hair raising scene by the end and it turns into an action sequence and I think those action sequences that have story relevance are always the best. And so it just kicked off everything into high gear from this moment. And Cassian realizes just exactly what he's getting himself into. Yeah. And this is also the moment where the, the neighborhood starts to bang and make noise. It's kind of like yeah. the earliest starts of the rebellion, which uh, again, that moment reminded me a lot of seven samurai where uh, when the samurai show up, they're ringing the alarm for bandits or, or actually when uh, Kikuchio does and the it, it seems like a reversal of that right where the bandits uh the bandit alarm in seven samurai is like all of the villagers are going to hide in this it's like no this alarm means we're all going to resist and uh it, it was really good okay so what follows there's a lot of action here i'm gonna try to be brief about it you know jump in if you guys have any thoughts on, on here 
But uh, Bix sees a tactical team, runs away, they come and grab her and arrest her or, you know, handcuff her. Or What, what is the Star Wars version of handcuffs? Uh, those would be binders, but binders. They, they detain her. I think detain yeah. would be the best. Detain. Uh, and or hears it knows, uh, hears them from outside and knows that he doesn't have much time left. Luthen has plans to steal a speeder and take it across the wasteland and Luthen ignites charges at the entrance to keep the tactical crew out, which I love that he's like, uh, you know, always, um, what's rule number one. He says rule number one is always like, uh, don't carry anything you can't control. Oh yeah, 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 that's rule. No- Wait, what, the one. What was it? Rule number oh. two. That like basically you, you always like watch your your entrance or something. You always. Oh like- yeah, maybe rule number that was rule number one, and rule number two is is don't carry anything you yeah. control. Yeah. Uh, and and they abandon the imperial box. Uh, and, well, he doesn't want to. Uh, but the, they're holding off. Uh, the team with blasters. There's blaster fires. That they're trying to make an escape. There's these suspended hunks of metal that are falling from the ceiling, like destroying the warehouse. It, it's just like an action, like an awesome action sequence, uh, because uh, obviously Cassian doesn't want to give up that box, and uh, you know Luthen just wants to get him and Cassian out of there. Uh, the Corpo are holding Bix uh, that are holding Bix are called to come help, but not before Tim. Makes his appearance. He's trying to save her, and then in the process, gets killed. Um, but he deserved it, right, guys? Because he sent in the tip. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Cyril's crew of corpos uh, split up, take positions as Luthen and Andor are coming their way. And Marva says, "When the banging stops, it, that's when you really have to fret." And um, Andor comes up from behind Cyril and gets information, disarms them uh, about how many corpos are they're dealing with and stuff. And I think this is really a moment here. This is a key moment that I feel like is the difference between Andor in this point of five BBY and Andor in Rogue One, because Andor in Rogue One would have had no, there would you know he would have killed Cyril right after this interaction but wedding him with i think is it a downfall because will will this come back to bite him in the butt is what i'm basically asking oh i'm absolutely sure of it but i actually think this is a direct result of him killing the other corporate sector uh authority on the other planet right where yeah. he, he he goes through with that and, and does that and it does not feel good yeah. Right. And he doesn't want to do that again. It doesn't make killing the next time easier. This arc so. in the series is going to be really weird, Brian. <laughs> I mean, it's basically him getting to the point that he accepts to just be a cold blooded killer for the cause. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the corpos who shot Tim, uh, one of the, the one that actually shot Tim tries to pilot a craft out of the scrapyard but some people have uh, connected it to a chunk of salvage and it becomes lodged between something and causes him to crash, which is a, a cool moment. Again, the sparks of the rebellion here. And uh, Cyril 
uh, is found gagged on the floor, and they seemingly make an escape uh, in a speeder, and the whole crew fires upon them, causing it to crash. But of course, they weren't inside it. Saw that coming. Um, meanwhile, a second craft, a speeder bike, flies out of the garage, and Luthen again detonates some explosive, allowing them to make the escape. Uh, Cyril's not happy. This is a disaster. This is not only a disaster, but this is the disaster that his boss told him. This is like the worst possible disaster. Uh, it's basically what his his boss told him was going to happen, but like times one hundred. Yeah, no, this is this is literally the worst case scenario for Cyril. <laughs> and uh, Marva is crying as uh, her adopted son races through the wastelands. Uh, and Bix is freed, and they leave Tim's corpse on the stairs, and Luthen and Cassian take off. And this is intercut with uh, young Cass taking off with B2 Emo and Marva as a young child. He looks at the bright sky ahead of him out, out of the cockpit, and Marva looks back at him, and there's like a Star Wars version of a Dreamcatcher hanging from the, the cockpit. Um, and, uh, but on Luthen's ship, older Cassian looks out of the cockpit window and he's, he has a look of a more serious look to him. Uh, I like that it echoes the moments, uh, the beginning, uh, the, 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 this, the beginning of this echoes. And then the, the end of this, uh, three episode arc kind of is an echo in ways. Yeah, no, I really liked how the the parallel storylines between them intertwine to both close a chapter in Cassian's life and open a new one as they head to the next place. The other thing I like that Tony did in this episode, I didn't re- read everything that was happening, but there was a few moments, especially during this last episode, where it intercut between all the characters we had met, um, all the different characters that Cassian had dealt with, like even, you know, the guy that he owed money to in the marketplace, the guy, and it was showing the situation from each of their perspectives in kind of like a quick cut montage. And I, I really thought that was a, a fun, you know, interesting way of showing the events. Yeah, no, it, I think the editing was really top notch in this. Yeah. Uh, so that is the end of episode three. Brad, is there anything we left out that you wanted to say? I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered a lot of good ground. I was surprised how quickly we moved through some of that, considering how much time. Yeah, it was a lot of action going on, and it's very easy to sum up action, but there, there was a lot of it. Yeah. Brian, anything you want to add about uh, the first three episodes? No, I think... The thing about this is that I feel like the Star Wars just has completely different touchstones based on the filmmaker behind it, right? Like George Lucas was like, I'm going to go with Kurosawa and it's Kurosawa's samurai movies and I'm going to go with Flash Gordon. And I wrote this in my Slash film piece too. Like, And Tony Gilroy's thing is is he's obsessed with Patty Shayevsky and Sidney Lumet and like... There's as much taxi driver in Cassian Andor in this arc as there is, you know, Luke Skywalker. And there's scenes, these these acting scenes feel like they could have been written by Patty Shayevsky and directed by Sidney Lumet the way they play out. And so it's just it's a different kind of Star Wars. It's totally different. And um, 
I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. No, I, I definitely don't think it's a bad thing. And it also occurs to me that is Tony Gilroy the, f- I mean, he isn't the director here, but um, is he the, the showrunner. showrunner? Is he the first showrunner or, you know, head of a, a, a Star Wars thing that like wasn't in love, like wasn't like a Star Wars fan going into this? Like, I'm not I saying mean, he he hates Star Wars. I'm not insinuating that. But, like, it, it really felt like, you know, the way Star Wars has been such an inspiration for J.J. Abrams or even Ryan Johnson. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like Tony is so – is a little bit more disconnected. Yeah. Um, I don't think he has any any precious feelings about Star Wars. And I, I know he wants to work in the sandbox respectfully and respect the canon and all the things that come before, but he's not precious about like what Star Wars is culturally, you know what I mean? Or like what it's meant to people. I don't think any of that is relevant to him because he's just an incredible craftsman of story and he happens to be, you know, constructing that story in a Star Wars sandbox. It's the same way as like, you know, it, it it's it's the same way as he'd be working in the Bourne uh, movies, right? It's just like he's telling a really incredible story in that universe. For sure. Okay, uh, let's get to our speculation section. Um, I only have a couple of things here. I don't think this show is like ripe for speculation, uh, but I have a couple of questions to ask you. Like, what is Marva's deal? And by that, I mean... What was she up to? Like she was there looting this Imperial ship with a Republic ship orbiting the planet. You know, what was going on there? It feels like maybe she's kind of like a ravager, similar to the way that Yondu is in Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe a little uh, less rough around the edges and, and scheming and conniving. But I feel like that's probably what they're, you know, how they were getting by, uh, how they were making a living and whatnot was, you know, grabbing stuff that they knew they could sell to make money. Yeah. I think, I think she has a direct connection in what they're doing to what Cassian realizes he can do at Steergard. Right. Like she's like one step behind where he becomes as far as his theft goes. Oh uh, yeah. Who is Luthen? I, I uh, we haven't seen the fourth episode. It seems yeah, we can't really speculate since we kind of know what his deal is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Fair enough. Um, I don't even think the fourth episode completely gives away his deal. No, but... no, no. It doesn't, it doesn't like tell us exactly, but like it tells us what kind of his place is in the, yeah, the, yeah. the overall story. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, where do you think Cassian's sister is? Because that, well, because you got to admit, like you know, we're doing a prequel here. This is a prequel, and usually in a prequel, there, uh, you know, where are the stakes? The state we know that Cassian's gonna die at the end of Rogue One, right? Like we we already know where he ends up, so the stakes there are minimal. So you got to create new stakes, and I feel like the stakes in this show that this this show's setting up at least emotionally is him trying to reunite with his sister. So. I think there's another moment in Rogue One that's that feels like a throwaway moment that kind of might give us some clues here that thematically ties all this. But um, remember how in Rogue One he kills Tivik 
And when he's roaming the streets of Jeddah for the first time with Jin, he talks about how his contact's sister is out looking for him. And that's Tivik's sister. And that never really gets played off, but that 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 his sister's looking for him is nagging at him, especially with the murder he committed. Mm. And I'm wondering if that's going to sort of thematically tie into this where where that is echoed in this, that he's looking for his sister, but she's going to have been murdered. And maybe at the last minute, right? Like just as he gets close enough to her trail that he'd actually be able to, to contact her, something that he is responsible for is going to have led to her death, especially with the uh, Cyril looking so much like a fascist, trying to become more and more of a fascist and uh, please the empire. And him taking this so personally I don't know. I think I think uh, I think Cassie and shooting people in the face is bad for sisters everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say that uh, I don't think there's um, a uh, a good ending to the story of Cassie's sister <laughs> in almost any way. But maybe I'm wrong there. Uh, I did see some speculation on Twitter. Some people were speculating. What if he finds out his sister became an imperial officer? And I feel like that would be the more traditional way to do this. That would be the, you know, almost lost stars in a way. Um, And I don't feel like Tony is going in that direction. That doesn't seem like the sort of story that would interest Tony Gilroy. Yeah. I don't know. Unless you go like the cutting edge Tony Gilroy. Maybe it is. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it'll be interesting. Uh, any other speculation that you guys have? I'm I'm really just excited to talk about the next episode next, actually. Well, that's good, Brian, because I'm going to be away all next week. But we've seen episode four. And we're going to pre-record an episode for next week. So if you, you want to look forward to us talking about Indoor episode four, we got you. We'll be there next Wednesday even though uh, the, the podcast will be in flux for the next week. But um, Brian, where can we find more of your work online? Uh, you can find uh, me on Slash Film. I've got a couple of pieces up about Andor already. Um, I mentioned that that interview I did with Tony Gilroy that's up at Script Magazine. And uh, you can listen to me on the Full of Sith podcast or find me at swankmatron.com. We'll put the links to all that in the show notes. Uh, you can find me and Brad at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at PeterSlashFilm.com. And uh, please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we mention the email on there. As you know, every week we do do the feedback section. So is there anything we missed, anything that you noticed that we didn't? Let us know. And uh, please Head on over to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and a review, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.